All right, Romans chapter 11. Get your Bibles out, get your notebooks out, get ready to roll. So Romans chapter nine is our transition point. You know our outline as we look at the cross and we look at now we're focused on the outlook for Israel in Romans chapter nine through 11. So we've learned in the first three chapters that we are sinful, that we have rebelled against God, that we can't be saved in and of ourselves, that we need grace, and that we can only be saved by Jesus Christ. And then he moves in chapter three to the righteousness and the justification and the adoption and all of this really good news for us. And then he transitions at that particular point in chapter nine, and he's answering the question, what about Israel? He talks to us about his passion for Israel to be saved at the beginning of chapter nine. Chapter nine, also a difficult chapter. He talks to us about the fact that he has chosen Isaac over Ishmael. He has chosen Jacob over Esau. He has raised up Pharaoh to show his wrath. And even as he has done all this, Paul reminds us that the clay has no place to question the potter. We have no place to look at God who is our creator, who has molded us and say, what have you done? This is not fair because we can't understand or comprehend the mind of God. He's gonna come back to that at the end of the chapter today to remind us that our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts and that he is incomprehensible because he is an eternal God and we are finite people. He comes in chapter 10 and he reminds us that he is passionate for Israel. He's also taught us that spiritual Israel and national Israel are two different things. And so there has always been a remnant inside of Israel who are believing, who are the true spiritual children of Abraham. But that doesn't mean all of Israel, nationally speaking, has ever been saved. In chapter 10, it's, it's so encouraging. He tells us, confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, and you will be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he pushes us, go get that message out to the ends of the earth. You're doing that on spring break. How are they gonna call on him and who they've never heard? How are they gonna hear unless there's someone who's telling the message? How are they gonna tell the message unless they're sent? And so beautiful are the feet who go and share the gospel. And then he ends that section, Romans chapter 10, and he says in verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now at that point in time, Israelites, Jews who are reading Paul's letter to Rome may be thinking, okay, you, you've walked through all of this and now you've said that the Lord held out salvation to us and Israel rejected it. Is he done with us? Is there a future for Israel? And then this chapter we come to in chapter 11, you have some people who believe in what's called a replacement theology and they believe that the church has just completely replaced Israel and that there's no future for Israel. But what this text actually tells us is there is a future for Israel, that God has a plan for Israel. And so the main idea of Romans chapter 11 is that the eternal God has a future plan for Israel. That's it. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I'm gonna try, but you can't miss what Paul's doing here as he writes this chapter. He's writing this chapter to tell those who are reading the letter in Rome, there is a place for future Israel. And he's gonna walk through this. And he's gonna start with past Israel. He's gonna start with his own self. He, he is an Israelite. And he's gonna mention Elijah and the remnant and then he's gonna talk about this present time with the present Gentiles and how God has allowed for the fullness of the Gentiles to be taking place and that's the present time even that we're in, but that there is a future point where he has something special in store for Israel 
And the text even says, all Israel will be saved. And we'll come to that. We'll talk about what I think that means. But then he ends almost in like he's walked through this and he's unveiled this mystery that God in his ultimate wisdom had a past remnant of Israel. There was a believing minority, even amongst the blinded majority. And then he included Gentiles, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, so that many of us would have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. But he's not done with Israel. There is a future place for Israel. And there are promises that God has made that he will fulfill to Israel. And then it's almost like Paul just stops and he goes into doxology. He goes into worship and he talks about the eternal God and how incredible and magnificent he is. And most of our application today is gonna be drawn from those last three or four verses as we comprehend and think about a God that is so much greater than us. He's not just more powerful than us. He's also so much infinitely smarter and more intelligent than what we are that we can't even comprehend all of the plans of this God. So there's your outline. Past Israel, present Gentiles, future Israel, and an eternal God. Try to lay that out in a way that would be somewhat rememberable. So we start, we're just gonna read through the text, walk through the text all at one time because it's a long text. So we start by looking at past Israel. We start with Romans chapter 11, verse one. Here's what it says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? So you remember his question and answer. He's done this before. It's not his first rodeo. He understands when he presents the gospel, these are the questions that come. He's anticipating the questions. He's thinking deeply. He's thinking really intelligently. He's anticipating the objections and he's cutting them off. And he's saying, wait a second. They're gonna wanna know, are we done with Israel? And the answer is, by no means, exclamation point. God forbid. He has used this multiple times throughout this book. And so he's saying here, no, God's not done with Israel. So then he's gonna offer these proofs. Inside this first proof, he's gonna offer particularly two. He's gonna offer himself, and then he's gonna go back to Elijah and use an illustration to remind us that God has always had his faithful remnant. By no means, for I myself, Paul writing here, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So why does Paul bring up himself? Well, Paul wants to say to them, God's not done with the Jewish people. God's not done with Israel because I'm an Israelite and God on that road to Damascus had this bright light shine and God confronted him with the risen Christ in such a way that he would be a missionary to the Gentiles and others and he convinced him of the gospel. He radically saved him. He changed his life so that the one who was persecuting the church is now a missionary for the church. So Paul can't say that God is done with the Jewish people. So then he moves on to his next Number two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Remember, he's pulling back in Romans chapter nine. He's pulling back in Romans chapter eight. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those who predestined, he elected. Those who elected, he justified. Those who justified, he's gonna glorify. All of these things. Well, he's, he's got a plan. God is faithful to his promises. God will not abandon his promises. And that's important for us to realize that that gives us assurance too. Because if we have confessed with our mouths and believed with our heart that Jesus is Lord, then we are relying on the promise that one day God will resurrect us from the dead, we'll spend eternity with him and that we'll be saved. And it's important for us to know that God keeps his promises. And so here he says so. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? So now back to an Old Testament illustration. He's pulling it forward. So what about Elijah. He appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. 
I alone am left and they seek my life. Okay, so let's put a comma right here. So somehow, I, I think somebody did it on purpose. I think somebody submitted my personal email address to these news sites that are like these doomsday, horrifying news sites. And every morning when I pull up my personal email just to scan it, because I get a lot of junk in my personal email, so I spend a lot of time just hitting delete, 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 delete. Like I don't even read, it's kind of like you do with your Cedarville email, right? I mean, I just <laughs> see all this stuff going through here and all of the headlines are doomsdays. You're, the banks are about to close. Your money's gone away. World War III is about to happen. Like it's, it's unfathomable to me that these people sit around and come up with this much bad news. They can take anything and spin it as bad news. They could watch Bluey and come up with bad news about it. They could, I'm telling you. I probably have an email today. Bluey dies. I mean, there's something's coming up. <laughs> okay, how many of you really like Bluey? Okay, yeah. All right. I told somebody I'd try to work that in. We got that done. Okay, box check. If you get on those email lists, if you get on those Twitter feeds and all you are feeding into yourself is woe is us, woe is me, the world's coming to an end, everything's horrible, everything's pathetic, guess what? You're gonna be depressed because you're gonna think, woe is me, everything's horrible, everything's pathetic. Think about Elijah. He had just done something really awesome and then all of a sudden it's like, Lord, I'm the only one left. No, you're not. Get over yourself. You are not the only one left. There were 7,000 people that had not bowed the knee to God. He has his remnant. And friends, today, he has his remnant. You are not the only faithful believer left in the world. And we are not the only faithful group of people left in the world. God has people literally all over the globe who have not bowed the knee. They have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you allow that news, and if you... Boy, people just want you to think everything is done and everything is horrible and the sky is falling and they want you to give them money so they can fix it or vote for them so they can fix it. And they're telling you all these things that make you feel alone and depressed and isolated and that's where Elijah was. Go back and read the story. I can't spend any more time on that because we got a long chapter. So here he says, they seek my life. Not only am I alone, they're trying to kill me. So what was God's reply to him? Get over yourself. Go watch Bluey. Have a milkshake and chill for spring break. He says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee. There you go. God's in control. He has his people. He understands and knows. These people have not bowed the knee to Bill. So too at the present time, here's what Paul is saying. It wasn't just back then. So too at the present time, there is a remnant and this remnant is chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. You see what he's doing here. He's just reminding us of this. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. How many times has he told us this in this chapter? If it's, if it's by works, it's not by grace. So this is by grace. I'm emphasizing to you again, salvation is by grace because he knows us. And he knows that every day we wanna pick up our shovel and we wanna go work so that we can be more acceptable to God. And he has to remind us it's not about your works, it's all about his grace. You cannot do enough good deeds to be acceptable to God because you are sinners. The only thing we can do is have the imputed righteousness of Christ put on us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, he sees Christ's righteousness. That is so freeing. You still need to work for God, but you need to work for God because you love him 
not because you're trying to earn his approval. So he continues on. Verse seven, what then? Another question. Israel failed, has Israel failed to obtain, obtain what it was seeking? And then he says this, the elect obtained it. Those who God chose obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Notice what he's, he's pointing out here, is that there has always, throughout Israel's history, there has always been a believing minority. There has always been a remnant, but there has also always been a blinded majority. There has always been people who were just blinded to the things of what the Lord was doing. Narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. There will always be a believing minority and you are never alone in that minority. But there will also always be a blinded majority and here's what he's pointing out. Some obtained it, some didn't. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Now, if you go back to Matthew, if you read through your gospels, the eyes and the ears over and over and over again, it's there. God gave them eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. They rejected the gospel, even though they knew it, even though they heard it, because they didn't like it. They wanted to do something that made them feel good about themselves and earn our salvation and not just rely on the grace of the gospel. So David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them and let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and to bend their backs forever. Is there a future for Israel? Absolutely, there is. Paul was an Israelite, God radically saved him. Elijah thought he was all alone, there was nobody left, there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. There has always been and will always be a believing minority in the midst of the blinded majority. So then he moves in verse 11 to the present Gentiles. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Why is it that they stumbled? Why is it that they fell? Was it just so that they could fall? Is it just so God could show his wrath? And he says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make the Jews jealous. Now, here he's gonna do this repeatedly. He's gonna talk about their fall, their trespass. He's gonna talk about trying to make the Jews jealous so that as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, not God's chosen people, but those whom God has now included, he wants to make the Jews Gentiles, the Jews jealous of the Gentiles saying, wait a second, this was for us, this wasn't for y'all. What are you doing enjoying it so that maybe more of the Israelites will be saved? Maybe more of that remnant will become larger. Maybe more of that believing minority will increase. And so the present time, what God has done is God has said, Israel, if you're gonna reject me, which he's blinded them so that they would eventually, the majority reject him, so that he could be gracious to us as Gentiles and include us into those who were saved. Maybe not all of you in the room are Gentiles, but the majority are. So I'm kind of using that as a reference for the whole. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass meant riches for the world and if their failure, repeated phrase here, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, here's your argument, how much more would their full inclusion mean? So if God has a plan for the future of Israel, which he does, and their full inclusion, how much greater is that gonna be? If the fact that they had trespasses and failed means that all of us were able to be saved, the fact that they're included in this gospel in the future means that something greater is gonna happen. Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, here he repeats this, in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. 
For if their rejection, he's repeating the same concept, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So if the rejection of Jesus by the Jews means that the message goes out to the Gentiles, then the acceptance of the message by the Jews, what would that mean but life from the dead? What would that mean but the resurrection? What will that mean but kicking off that eschatological time frame as we see it happen? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now here he shifts his argument and he's saying if the root or if the dough or any other aspect is holy in the beginning, then it's gonna end up being holy. So if the dough is holy as the first fruit, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he transitions here into a second illustration, this illustration being of the olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although wild olive shoots, so he describes us as the wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, and here's a comma, we're gonna come back to this. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So here's your illustration. There's an olive tree that represents Israel and because of their rejection, God broke off some of those branches and he judged them and he took the wild branches, meaning the Gentiles, and grafted them into this tree, which is not the way you do it in horticulture, by the way. At least that's what the commentaries say. I'm no specialist in horticulture. But it says that you actually take the good and graft it into a wild tree and then the wild tree becomes a good tree. So it's never a good idea to take the wild and graft it into what is already good. But what he's saying here is if the root's holy, then what it has done is it's taken us wild Gentiles and it's put us into a good tree and it's made us now holy because we're part of this. And so he says to us, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant against the Jewish people. Don't be arrogant against Israel. Don't be arrogant with God. Because if God has the power and the willingness to break off those who have rejected him, that should be a stern warning to all of us. Have humility. We'll come back to it. If you are Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So if you're arrogant, recognize this fact. You're just a branch. You're not the root. You can't do anything without the root. This is like abiding in Christ. We can't do anything on our own without Christ. And here's the root that supports us. Then you will say, oh, well, wait, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So again, he says, do not become proud, but fear. So this is the second push for humility. Do not become proud, but fear. We don't like the word fear. Fear of the Lord, a reverential awe that recognizes he is all powerful and that he is godly and it allows us to have a humility so that we think less of ourselves. We, we think of ourselves less often. We don't put ourselves at the center of the universe. We put the gospel at the center of the universe. We know that it's not all about our story. It's about being part of his story and so we push into this. So don't become proud, but fear. He's gonna say this again in a different way. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither would he spare you. Don't get arrogant. Don't get prideful. Don't think that you're God's gift to the church or to all creation. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. We like to focus on the kindness of God. We like to think about a loving, gracious, merciful God, and we should. 
but notice also the severity of God. And if you're in the room and you know that you're in rebellion against God, maybe this is a word for you. Note the severity of God. What you sow is what you will reap. You cannot get away with things because God knows all things. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, to us Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. This is not talking about losing your salvation. This is talking about Gentiles in general. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, he's using that illustration to tell us God's not done with Israel. It's an easy thing for him to graft them back into the natural olive tree. Don't get arrogant, don't get prideful. Remain humble in our position and be thankful about the grace of God. Then he turns in verse 20. Five, and he pushes to future Israel. Lest you be wise in your own eyes. And this is another way of talking about pride and arrogance and all of these things. Lest you be wise in your own eyes. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is not, it's not what we think of when we think of a mystery. It's something that up until this point has not been revealed. It has not been unveiled to everybody. So what is the unveiling? What is the revelation that Paul is gonna talk about here? A partial hardening came upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles came in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what does this mean? I don't know. But here's my best guess at it. What the mystery is, is the mystery is that the Jews in Israel rejected Jesus Christ. So he opened up a time for what's called the fullness of the Gentiles, so that many Gentiles would be saved. And then at some point in time, that fullness of the Gentiles will reach its completion. And then the text says that all Israel will be saved. Now, if this was all Israel from all time, I don't think this is a great revealing or unveiling of something new. If this is just the remnant of those who have believed, I don't know that this is a great unveiling of something new. But I also don't think it means every single person that's part of national Israel is going to be saved because the Old Testament mentions all Israel many times and it's not referring to every single individual, it's referring to them as a collective. So I think what this means is that at the end, there's gonna be a great number of national Israel that will believe in Christ and that will join spiritual Israel. They will have faith in Jesus Christ. They will turn to Christ in great numbers and that the remnant that believes in Christ will grow substantially at some point in time in the future. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel for right now, they're enemies for your sake. Now, when you hear that they're enemies for our sake, remember that the Lord has told us to pray for the peace of Israel. So we should pray for Israel. The Lord, our Lord, is pro-Israel. So in our prayers, we should be pro-Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that everything national Israel does is right or perfect or good, but what it means is that God has a future plan for Israel. And because our God has chosen them and adopted them as his children and he's gonna come back and have a plan for them, then he commands us to pray for the peace of Israel. They were enemies regarding the gospel for our sake. 
But as regards election, God's ultimate decision, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God and you now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to they also may now, shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this goes back to one through three. All of us are rebels against God so that he could have mercy on all of us. So past Israel, there was always a remnant. Present Gentiles, we're trying for as many Gentiles as possible to be saved. When does that time end? I don't know. It's when we reach the fullness of the Gentiles. It's when God says so. And then there's a future plan for Israel. And Israel does have a place in the future. And then here, all of a sudden, Paul transitions. Notice how it changes. And he's focusing on the eternal God in verse 33. Oh, the depth. The depth of what? Of his riches and his wisdom and the knowledge of God. How do you re-say this in a different way? How unsearchable are his judgments? Meaning we can't search them to find out all the details because we don't even have all the facts and we can't gather all the data. How inscrutable are his ways? We can't sit in judgment on God. The God who created us, the God who's offered mercy to all of us, we can't sit in judgment on him. His ways are inscrutable. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody in the room? Have you known the mind of the Lord? You remember back to Job? Hey, Job, where were you when I hung the stars in place? Where were you when I said the seas can come this far and no further? We don't know. Again, we're back to humility. Or who has been the Lord's counselor? Who has God gone to and says, hey, I need some advice? There's nobody. Do we need advice? All the time. Do we go to people and hope to get good advice? All the time. God goes to no one for advice. Or who has given a gift to him who has everything that he might be replayed? What would you give God for a gift? What can we give to a God who created all of this, including us, as a gift? There's nothing we can give him other than our devotion, our worship, our praise, our lives. And that's what he calls us to do. Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? Nobody. Because when we jump to chapter 12 after spring break, we're gonna find out that it's our reasonable service. It's just what we're supposed to do to worship God. Here he ends. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Because he is the eternal God. All right, how do we apply this to our lives? We apply it in a few ways. Be humble. We heard this in our passage multiple times. So let me just give you a caution. All of you have a Bible minor. Some of you are having Bible majors. You may get an MDiv, which means you are a master of God. You are a master of divinity. If you think because you have a master of divinity degree that you know everything there is to know about God, then you have really, really missed the point. Because the more you study about God, the more you realize how much you don't know about God. The more you dive into the depths of the questions, the more in awe you should be and the more humble you should be. So if your theology makes you arrogant as though you think you've got it figured out and all these other puny little humans don't, then you've missed it. Proper theology 
helps us to see our humble place before an amazing God. Be comforted. Perhaps you're wondering, what am I gonna do after graduation? What am I gonna do for this summer? What happens? All of these different questions that pop up. Well, be comforted because God's all powerful and he's all knowing and he's got a plan. And all you have to do is wake up and do the next right thing. Lord, how can I serve you this day? The next day. Lord, how can I serve you this day? The next day. Lord, help me to serve you this day in a way that honors and glorifies you. And then you look back after a long walk in the same direction, you see that God had a plan all along the way and that he has put you exactly where he wants you and exactly where he needs you. Be worshipful. So good, I wanna, I wanna take a moment here. So good theology should lead to doxology, to worship. But I also wanna caution you that you can't have doxology without good theology. You can't just show up and say, I wanna worship because my question to you is, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping some creation of your own mind that you like and that you feel good about and that you think is what should be? Or are you actually worshiping the one true God who has revealed himself to us? So proper theology allows us to understand what God has revealed about himself in such a way that we then humble ourselves and come in all to the ultimate creator. And that proper theology then forces us to have a doxology that comes from us in spirit and in truth. That's our inner being crying out with all that we can offer God, which is worship and true praise to him for who he is. And thankfulness for the fact that he saved a sinner who is a worthless worm like me. You can't have doxology without theology. But if you have good theology, it will always lead to worshiping the one true God. Lastly, be amazed. We serve a God that needs no counselor. We serve a God that we can't fully comprehend. So if you're out there right now and you just got through with your Theo class and you're like, I still have questions, that's okay. Because your faculty members do too. And as smart as they may be, and as many books as they may have read, nobody on this planet understands the mind of God. So when you get to the point and you say, I don't understand this, I've got a question, I'm missing something. You may not be missing something. You may be exactly where you need to be with a question mark in the right place. Because at that point, you understand where you fall on that totem pole and where he falls on that totem pole. And that should cause us all to pause, thank him, and then worship him. So let me end with a word of caution. It's spring break. The sun's coming out. The sky's turning blue. I've been at this a long time. This is the time of season where students every now and then do really stupid things because you've been cooped up for so long and all of a sudden you get free and you go out and all of a sudden you go do something that's really dumb. Know that the devil is a lion prowling. And be wise in your own quiet times, in your friend groups, in how you have fun, and how you live your life. Be wise. We love spring. It brings excitement. It brings life. And we should love it. But we need to also be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and recognize that spring also brings temptations. So I just want to say to you, be smart. Be wise. Because... I love you and care about you, and I want you to flourish. Your main idea today, the eternal God has a future plan for Israel. If you remember nothing else about Romans chapter 11, just remember that's the chapter that says there is a future for Israel. And next time, 
when we come back after spring break, we're into chapter 12 and it's all application and it's all sanctification from that point forward. So we need to worship the Lord and then we need to go about our days. One week till spring break. You got this. You can do it. You are loved. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, you are a good God. You're a holy God. You are unfathomable, unsearchable, inscrutable. So Lord, we confess to you that we are sinful human beings and that even on our best days, we get our motives often wrong because we wanna do something that makes people think good about us. So Lord, what can we offer you? Really nothing but praise and worship, obedient lives. God, you are God that keeps your promises and help us to never forget that. And Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory and honor to your name, for you are worthy. Amen.